Welcome to the first episode of season two of Nick Talk with yours truly, Nikki James. And this season, I really wanted to focus on people with fun and interesting jobs. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking with a local businessman who has a lot of buzz around him. That's right. I said business. And that's because today we're going to be talking with the owner of Brian's Bees. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Brian Castro. Brian, how are you? Doing great. How about you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, when I first um, knew that I wanted to have you on my show, it's because I went outside and I saw some of the bees um, in my yard kind of dying awkwardly. And um, that's what first, you know, prompted me to kind of pick up the phone and and call you but i thought there's probably a lot that people don't know about bees um so i i really wanted to talk a little bit about what your day-to-day life looks like well there really isn't a day-to-day life for us you know when when you you do anything with farming um you're you're working with nature you know Mm -hmm. so you're completely at the mercy of the seasons and on top of all that, outside of even normal farming where, you know, you know that you have a crop every so often if you have, you know, oranges, you know that they're going to be ready every year. With bees, it's completely at the mercy of the bees because they're, it's beekeeping. It's not bee farming, right? Yeah. They're, they're in a box at their own mercy. They could leave if they want to, right? Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, your whole cycle is all based on what the bees are up to and what nature's up to. The bees might be trying real hard, but maybe the flowers aren't. So it's, it's different every single month, every single day. Yeah. You know, I wanted to, I, I have so many questions. So I guess let's start at the beginning. So what first got you started um, into beekeeping in general? Um, either good or bad luck, depending on how you look at it. Um, <laughs> okay. I was... <laughs> I was going to school at uh, Cal State Channel Islands in uh, Camarillo, California, and I got into the biology program, and I had a professor there that I, I was basically failing his class. I was in his office hours, like every single week, mm-hmm. and he goes, I love your work ethic. How'd you love to come and work for me? And I went, okay, um, what do you do? He goes, well, we're going to be working on honeybees. <sighs> and I went, ooh, I am really busy. <laughs> <laughs> And, and his response was, well, what else do you have going on? Well, nothing. He goes, perfect. I'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. Oh. And um, we we met really, really early because we had to drive about two hours out to the Central Valley of California in the middle of the summer. It was, I think it was July on like one of the hottest days. Oh. And so we're in these bee suits, um, full cotton bee suits, and it's like a hundred and over a hundred outside and just angry Africanized bees. And it was a whole ordeal. And at the end of the day, I absolutely fell in love with it. Oh, okay. Quick question. What does Africanized mean? Africanized bees are technically the same species as European honeybees. There's a couple different varieties, but they're all honeybees. But the main difference is their temperament. So mm-hmm. with a pure European domesticated beehive, if you were to get a little bit of smoke on it, open it up, um, not wear a suit, you know, you could probably go through whatever you're trying to go through and you might get stung once on a bad day, mm-hmm. you know, but with an Africanized beehive, if you so much as even stand in front of it, mm-hmm. uh, 
literally hundreds, if not thousands of bees will sting you and they won't stop stinging you until you're ridiculously far away, sometimes up to two miles away. So um, just, just the violent reaction is completely different. And that's, that's really the only difference. Okay. Okay. So you fell in love with it from your professor and uh, what did it look like from there? So what, what got you from loving bees to opening your own business with the bees? Well, I was in school learning how to do research for ecology and I kind of had a realization relatively early on that researchers are paid for by the farmers. And I kind of decided that I would rather be one of the people funding the research rather than one of the people doing the research and hoping that the person that is funding it is reasonable. Um, so we, we really pursued it that way. And plus I was, I basically learned to love bugs from the bug lab there. And when you're working with insects, you really either going to make your money by exterminating them or raising them. And in the raising them aspect, because um, exterminating them is no fun, um, you you really have to grow a very small variety of insects. There's not a lot of bugs we really appreciate and actually farm and grow. So mm-hmm. honeybees just kind of seems like the natural choice. Right. Yeah, and you know, I've heard that there, that like... I don't know how many people have heard this, but I'm guessing a lot of my listeners probably have, um, that there's, they're a really important part of the environment. Can you tell us anything about what you know about that? Well, it's, it's a mix, right? I mean, on, on one hand, just to be completely honest, um, honeybees are European honeybees. They are not native to North America. Hmm. So in terms of how important they are, um, they're basically an invasive species that, in a natural environment, will push out the native bees, the you know, native bumblebees and orchard bees and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that, that's out here. But in a farming setting where you have, for example, right now, um, I don't know how many acres of almonds it is. It's a ridiculous number. I think they're pushing a million acres of almonds. Oh, wow. Uh, there's, there's no way to have that many native solitary bees ready to go for that bloom. So the only way to do it is to bring out uh, boxes of honeybees because you know there's 60,000 sometimes in the colony compared to sometimes as little as one or five um, native bees in the colony. So they're not really important for nature. If if the native if the European honeybee were to disappear, uh, all of the normal native plants would still do okay. Okay. But we'd have a really really hard time making any food. Right. Okay. So you actually take the bees that you have raised, um, I guess, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology there, but you take them to places like you were just talking about an almond farm. You take them Mm -hmm. and what, just let them go to pollinate? Well, they all live inside their box, right? When you you think about a beehive, they're normally in a box that's stacked however high. And that box is the colony. And every night they, they do all of their behavior and all of their I don't really know how to describe it exactly but all of their life is based on sunlight outside of the hive so if there's no sunlight they can't see so they can't get their orientation of where things are mm-hmm. so every night or when it's cold they go back home and they all bundle up so as beekeepers uh, we more or less if we can follow the bloom uh, for example out here in California even if we only wanted to live off the native plants uh, every year around June or July all of the wild stuff is just brown and dead and dried up. Mm. 
-hmm. So you get the choice to either let your bees starve or move them somewhere that there's flowers. And it's the same principle of orchards. So, you know, some beekeepers will move their bees from almonds uh, over to avocados in Southern California, then move up north usually for alfalfa, something like that, and then come back for blueberries late in the season to kind of overwinter. So that way they're always on a bloom no matter where they go. Oh, wow. How long, how long does a bee live? It depends. In the wintertime, if you live somewhere where it snows, they can live all winter. But any other time other than when they're just completely in the hive, tucked away for the winter time, it's usually about six weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So so that kind of maybe explains, um, you know, when, when I first started, you know, the show, I was telling you that um, some of my bees outside by the orange tree were, were just kind of dying. Do you think maybe it's just like the end of their life, I guess? It yeah. is so hard to know for sure what exactly has killed the bee. I mean, the... The most difficult thing about beekeeping in modern day, um, mm-hmm. well, before I talk about that, let's, let's go back in time a little bit. Okay. If you look at bees, it's roughly 30 or 40 years ago. If you had a beehive that you set on the ground and it didn't starve to death or you didn't have some crazy blizzard that froze them to death, there'd be a really, really good chance that if you went and checked on it next year, it would still be there. In modern day, if you take a beehive, or even a whole apiary, right, of a thousand beehives, um, it's it's really not that uncommon for us to lose in, in the neighborhood of 5% of our stock every single month. Oh, wow. And that's a, partially because we've introduced a tremendous number of new uh, pests. Um, there's one specifically called Varroa mite, um, Varroa destructor that just tears bees apart. Uh, you also have new chemicals that I think are very much to blame um, on the things that we eat, which are fantastic for humans. Mm-hmm. and spectacularly safe for us in general compared to the old stuff we used to use. Yeah. But they really kill bugs, you know, and unfortunately that means it's not great for bees. Right. So, you know, it's it's tough to know if it's just something that's naturally happening or if it's something that is from one of these new external factors. Right. But the big thing to remember is that the, in the springtime especially, I mean, California, we're in spring now, mm-hmm. the queen can lay up to a thousand eggs a day. And the population is growing a little bit, but for every day, you know, if we're talking about those bees that were, you know, a month and a half old, mm-hmm. you have in the neighborhood of a thousand dead bees per colony and you have a lot of colonies out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, again, I have so many questions about this because this is so interesting. A lot of people, like I said, just don't know what goes into keeping bees. So one of the first things I know people are going to think when they hear that I'm talking to someone who owns a beekeeping uh, business is, you know, the first thought in people's minds, they see the white outfit, they see the mask, they see you out there pulling out the honeycomb tray out of, you know, this wooden box in the, the middle of some garden or something. You know, that's what I think most of society thinks. And and they get nervous about getting stung. And you said, you know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Um, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the ratio of you getting stung and not getting stung on a daily basis? Like, would you consider this a dangerous profession? Well, I would absolutely consider it a dangerous profession. I mean, just, just in terms of tools and what we do, I mean, getting what, how many jobs out there is, you know, physical pain and exposure to, you know, things that can kill people. 
yeah. you know, part of the daily job. Um, one of the one of the funniest statistics out there um, is when you think about Australia, you think about how dangerous the place is, right? Yeah. All the crazy animals. But when it comes to uh, the number one man killer in all of Australia, it's flying, seeing insects, mostly bees, sometimes wasps. Wow. Um, more than all the, you know, alligators, crocodiles, um, spiders, snakes, everything else yeah, that's out yeah. there. Yeah. And when you mix that on top of, you know, we have a smoker, we're carrying fire with us all the time. Um, and everything else that's involved, you know, heat stroke from being in a cock suit in the middle of the day in the summer. Um, I, I would argue it's one of the most dangerous jobs out there. Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's, a, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, you know, but you just mentioned the smoker. What, what is in the smoker? What does it do and how do you use it? Well, the smoker is uh, more about the smoke than it is about what's in it. So if, if you're a honeybee and you smell smoke, that means there's fire. coming. Mm. And when you think about their hive, what it really is, is sometimes literally over a hundred pounds of honey and thousands and thousands of babies. And it's all built into that wax honeycomb. So if there is a fire, you can't really, or they can't really, pick up all of their stuff and leave. It's just not really possible. Mm -hmm. So when they smell smoke, it triggers their fire response, which is to gorge themselves on, a much, on as much of their honey as they can, which kind of goes into their, uh, their honey stomach, so it's kind of like a storage. Mm -hmm. And so that if the fire does roll through, they can leave and have enough stores to build up and make all that new wax and that new comb. And on top of that, the bees are really based on their sense of smell. So when you go through with that smoker, instead of there being all the bees there ready to protect their hive, you kind of introduce some level of chaos. So that way they're more focused on the honey and taking care of stuff and more oblivious to what you're doing there when you come in to interrupt. Wow. That, uh, that goes into, you know, we're in Southern California, um, or I am, I know you're, I know you're um, a few places, but, uh, have you had any, um, issues with the California fires? Speaking of smokers? Um, I have not. I'm, I'm pretty strategic in how I keep my bees and where I keep my stuff, mm -hmm. but I know a lot of beekeepers that, uh, have more beehives than I do, and they're not as uh, privileged in being able to pick good locations. They, you know, if you have 10,000 beehives, you kind of have to put them where people will let you. So, um, I mean, in the last several large fires we have, I, I have one very close friend that lost pretty much all of his stock in the fire. Oh. Um, I know several other beekeepers that when the fires have rolled through, they've been frantically moving bees. Um, it, it can be kind of a nightmare. And when all the equipment is made out of wood and beeswax, um, yeah. once that fire goes through, there's, you know, there's nothing left. Right. Oh, Wow. All right. Well, let's move on to something a little bit more positive. Um, let's talk about um, bee removal because you own Brian's Bees, which is bee removal, pollination, and um, also uh, sales, right? Honey sales and, and different right. things of that. Um, but I was watching your YouTube video um, and it was about how you and your staff removed um, a beehive from an attic. Uh, so I wanted to know what that looks like for you. How long does it take? Like kind of walk me through um, what it looks like for you to go do that. You know, when I, when I describe this, it's going to be kind of unfair because um, 
I've, I've done so many, you know, and, and all of our guys, before they're allowed to do anything on their own, they really do need just about a full year of training. Um, I mean, like hundreds of hours of practice before they can even start to do things on their own mm-hmm. because this is that difficult. Wow. But um, for, for me to do it, really all it is, is we have to get access to the honeycomb. So whatever they're inside of, which very common out here to have them in roofs or walls. Mm-hmm. And we more or less have to open up the structure where they're at and lift the whole beehive out. We put some stinky stuff inside of where the cavity was to make sure the bees don't go back in. And we put them all in a box and then we take them with us. And you never really know what you're going to get when you do this because you're working with construction and bees that aren't yours. Right. And you come across all kinds of really weird issues from you know the construction of the home to maybe the bees are doing something really weird because they, I mean, it's just not a situation that you have complete control of because you're kind of walking into it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, it's like a puzzle every single time to, to figure out how to open up the structure with the least amount of damage for the homeowner and get the bees out in the safest and cleanest way that possible. So quickly, you said if they're doing something weird, what, what would it, what would they be doing weird? Well, I mean, for the most part, when they're going into a home, they're going to be in the closest space to where they're first going in because these are lazy they want to kind of walk through the front door and just be home (laughs) but every now and then you'll get something where they have a really long walk from where they go in into something else or you'll have some weird construction thing where once you get the space open where you think the bees are they're nowhere near there and they're in something else or you'll have some kind of really weird construction material to open up I mean We've, we've gotten bees out of all kinds of fun stuff. I mean, just, just name some of my favorites. We had a, a Buddha statue. We have actually had a few Buddha statues that had bees in them, which oh my you know, is kind of poetic, you know. <laughs> um, but but they also get into, you know, attic spaces where the, the homeowners have those cam lights in the ceiling where the lights go straight to the attic. And as you're working on it, if you're not careful, you can accidentally flush all the bees into the house. You know, so there, there's there's so many just crazy, crazy stories for, for all these different parts that um, that just even the most mundane thing, once you add bees, is now suddenly an extreme thing, right? Like yeah. picking up a hundred pound box is fine. Picking up a hundred pound box full of bees is different, you know. So you get there and you, what do you you take out a hive and then what do you do with them? Well, we keep them. Um, it's, it's a really traumatic experience for them to, you know, be opened up and moved, obviously much less traumatic than, you know, having someone spray them or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're having their whole, it'd be like if someone ripped open your roof and, you know, took your whole family out, put you in a new house and then moved you across the country. Right. Um, so it's, it's a really big ordeal for them, but you know, the general idea is to get them into our new apiary where they can live a safe and happy life and get them into an actual box where they can be uh, medicated and fed and overall cared for compared to being into an attic where they're kind of on their own. Yeah. What were to, what would happen if, um, I mean, would it, would it be less traumatic if, I don't know, there's no less traumatic way to get those bees out. Is there? <laughs> Cause most people no, just take a, a broom and hit it. Don't they? I mean, if it's a wasp nest, you might get away with that with honeybees. There's no way, you know, <laughs> there's, <laughs> Up, up to 60,000 bees or so there and several hundred pounds of honey. So once they're up there, really the only options to get rid of them is to spray them, which is horrible, yeah. or to actually physically open it up and get all that stuff out. Because even if you get the bees out, the 
bees are regulating temperature on that beehive. So if yeah. you remove the bees without removing the honey and you mm-hmm. get a nice warm California day, which is every day out here, exactly. all that honey and all that wax and all that stuff will actually leak out of the beehive and into the wall or into the attic or whatever oh. happens to be below. And it makes this horribly sticky, awful mess. It's got to be just taken apart and cleaned out. Wow. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I think the average person doesn't really think about everything that goes into that. You know, they just think there's bees and, you know, you've got a family around or people around. You don't want to get stung. Um, but I was going to ask what would happen if you if you just let it go. But, you you know, I think you just answered that with saying, you know, it drips down in to the like the house and it, it can cause like structural damage, can it? It, it can. Um so you kind of have two different stories there. So the, the first thing is that I've I've actually opened up homes that have had beehives in them for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, even if a beehive, even if the queen passes away and the queen can live up to around six years, the colony will on its own try to create a new queen that will try and uh, and run the colony from there. And if for some reason that fails and the colony passes away, there is no greater lure for a new swarm than a pre-built house. You know, a, a pre-built honeycomb there for them to move right. into. So even if you do ignore them and they go away on their own, you can almost guarantee that they will move back in. So you know, I, I have opened up homes that have had beehives in there for over 30 years, and they're just massive. I mean, the, the biggest one I ever cleaned out, I want to say we we filled up about eight buckets of wax and honey. You know, so that's wow. Um, about 40 gallons of bee stuff that was not salvageable. That's on top of the stuff that we actually saved you know, and took with us. Yeah. But um, they, they can get really, really large, and they create a lot of humidity. So it'll actually cause the sheetrock around it to warp and fall apart, and same with the wood around it will actually kind of rot sometimes. Yeah. So it, it does cause pretty tremendous damage over a long enough time if you just leave them alone and, and they don't go away on their own. Yeah. Okay, you know, that, that leads me to another another thought. I think a lot of people, I'm speaking for a lot of people that are <laughs> probably like, I don't think that, but anyway, um, I guess in my mind, I'll, you know, there, I think there's so many different species of bees. Do they all build the same way? Do they all, because I know not every bee makes honey. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So, um... I mean, this is kind of, it almost sounds rude and sorry, but there's one group of about seven species of bees called honeybees. Yep. And there's only one species of honeybee in North America. All the rest, I, I think all the rest are in Asia. There might be a couple exceptions, but pretty much mm-hmm. all of them are, are in Asia. Okay. And those specifically build what you kind of imagine, which is like those big sheets of honeycomb. And uh, that, that's kind of what most people imagine when they think of bees. But yeah. when you think about the actual number of bees out here, there's, I think there's around 5,000 species in California. Mm-hmm. And that ranges from bumblebees, which again are way bigger. And you have little tiny bees like orchard bees and green bees that can't sting and um, are they almost look like a fly. They're bright green and shiny. Yeah. Um, but all of these bees will eat nectar. Mm-hmm. And they sometimes will save it. It just doesn't save in the same way as hunter is in the same form as honey. So, right. like with bumblebees, their colony isn't uh, isn't horizontal, like facing downwards. It's facing upwards, and they make what they call honey pots, which is like a little symbol-sized um, cell that they'll put a little bit of nectar in for the colony. Yeah. 
But if you wanted to harvest honey and really talk about honey in the way that most people imagine it, that would be just with the honeybees, not with the different ways all the other bees do it. Okay. Now, have you come across um, people getting honeybees and hornets mixed up? All the time. Um, it's, again, kind of, kind of rude of me, but they're, they're totally different when I look at it. I know that most people yeah. don't have uh-huh. that, uh, that same kind of experience, you know, but a honeybee hive is going to be literally thousands of individuals. You know, it's, it's going to look like when you're looking at it, a ball of bees all huddled together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's versus a wasp nest or hornet nest is usually going to be, you know, 10 to a hundred individuals. Sometimes you get really big colonies, but not often. And um, they, they just function different and they look different because the wasps are typically more bald because they're predators or parasitoids. They're eating mm-hmm. other things versus honeybees or, or vegetarians. Oh. And, you know, when, when most people see bees, what they are seeing is the traffic going in and out of a hive. They very rarely actually see the hive, mm-hmm. which is, I think, why most people get so shocked when they actually see everything open and see all of the bees there. Because yeah. the bees going in and out are very often going to be 1% or less of the full colony. Okay. And when you actually get into where all of the bees are, you know, like I said, we're, we're very typically looking between 30 and 100,000 individual bees, all alive, all there, all huddled up doing their job. Which are more aggressive, honeybees um, or like the wasps or like, like, like the, the other ones? You know, that, that's tough for me to say. I mean, an Africanized colony is awful, right? I mean, they, they will sting the heck out of you they can only sting once but it's almost worse because they like lose their stinger in you and it's yeah it's, it's not fun but if you were to go and whack a wasp nest that's pretty bad too <laughs> um on kind of one of the more funny stories for me is one time i got a call for bumblebees and we do a lot of them now but at the time it was my first one mm-hmm. i'm like oh man it's a bumblebee nest and, and bumblebees only have somewhere between five and sometimes up to a hundred individuals in the colony if it's a really big one mm-hmm. compared to you know like 60 or a hundred thousand in a big honeybee colony yeah so i thought oh this won't be too bad and they were in this little birdhouse and i, I was wearing my veil but i wasn't wearing my full suit mm-hmm. and that was the day that i learned that if you actually mess with the bumblebee colony those are just about as mean as any honeybee test <laughs> i've ever messed with <laughs> okay. and they can sting more than once and i i got tore up pretty good oh, no. so you know i i wouldn't really say that any of them are more aggressive than others because they're um all, all the bees and or wasps or anything like that anything they can sting is a girl and they're all moms right yeah so if you were to go and mess with any mom's home any mom's babies you're gonna have the same kind of experience whether it's a bee or a bear or you know what have you yeah so um they're they're pretty much all the same I, I wouldn't want to mess with any of them without a suit if I can help it okay you know what that takes me right into um some of the statistics and uh and, and things fun facts so I've heard that all worker bees are females is that true that's true um, so in the honeybee colony, or, and this is going to be all flying, stinging stuff in general. You're, you're oh, going to have wow. the boys that don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And then you have the girls that do all of the work and they have stingers. Wow. So the, the stinger is actually part of the reproductive organs of the bee. It's, it's modified. Mm-hmm. So the bees do not have stingers. Their employee bees don't have stingers. They're not capable of it. Mm-hmm. So in most colonies, the boys are, and it, it's going to vary from, 
species of species, but with honeybees especially, um, they actually decide if they want to lay boy bees. Um, they can actually just choose to have nothing but girls. And when resources get tight, um, like when they're approaching winter and things like that, mm-hmm. they'll push all the boys in the front porch and not let them in. Oh. <laughs> um, the boys, yeah, because the boys are about twice the size of the girl bees. They eat a lot more honey and they cannot even clean themselves. They're too big. They don't produce honey. They literally mate and then die immediately after. The ones that mate and die immediately after are... Those are all just the boys. That's how it works with honeybees. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of other species of bees, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it's kind of a little bit unbalanced, the way that they produce boys versus girls. They make tons and tons of boy bees, and you know, only a few queens will actually be produced. Wow. That's because the, uh, the queen on her, on her mating flight, which she only gets one of, Mm-hmm. She usually mates with in the neighborhood of 10 male bees, and then that's the only time she'll mate over her whole life, and she'll uh, be able to produce offspring from that for up to around six years. Wow. So what how, what determines a queen bee? The royal jelly. So when all bees are first made, they produce what's called royal jelly, which is just a special compound um, that's kind of similar to honey. And... Somewhere around the fifth to seventh day of the young bee's life, Mm -hmm. they will stop feeding royal jelly to all the workers, but they will continue to feed royal jelly to the queen for the entire lifetime of the bee. Okay. Until she, you know, fully develops and hatches out as as an adult. So it's like the colony picks who's going to be the queen, huh? Kind of, kind of. They, They do kind of select for the, for the larva that will be made into queens, mm-hmm. but they will produce a whole bunch of queens, um, typically around 10, give or take. Okay. And the first one that hatches out goes around and kills all of her sisters. Oh. And if more than one hatches, they'll actually fight to death. Wow. Um, every, every now and then, you'll get a colony that does manage to have two queens, and one usually stays on one end of the colony and one stays on the other. But it's very, very rare we really come across. I mean, that's maybe 1% or so of all the colonies that we come across have more than Oh my god! Have you seen this? Like, have you have you seen this like action take place in front of your eyes before? You know, we're opening up beehives all the time, mm-hmm. so you know we're we're not able to like sit down like a movie and and witness <laughs> the whole thing. But we do jump in uh, during the process more often than we really like to, because when they're doing that, the best thing we can do is leave them alone. Yeah. But um, all the time, you'll open up a hive, and there'll be a bunch of brand new baby queens all getting ready to hatch, or maybe you'll see one hatch out. And um, it's, it's the whole thing. And one of the really, really common ways that we do see what they're doing is when we are making new colonies, the easiest and quickest and easiest and easiest way to do it is you more or less rip the colony in half. You have the old queen in one half of the colony, and you put a new queen in the queenless half of the colony. And now you have two colonies. And to do that, though, you have to have a box full of baby queens. And mm-hmm. so what will happen is the queens really don't like each other and they're all based on smell and some sight but mostly smell so they can smell each other and so they'll do what we call piping which is where the bees basically call out and they'll go at each other yeah and that is their kind of battle cry saying come and fight me and you know we'll, we'll see who the queen gets to be oh wow so when you have these boxes of you know sometimes several hundred queen bees all in it it's just singing out with that piping song from all these little bees all all challenging each other there's another fact that um, i heard and that is that the male bees have bigger eyes to help them find the queen bees is that true 
Yeah. So the male bees are completely built around mating because that's all they do, mm-hmm. right? They're, they even have a shorter lifespan. So um, they, they develop into an adult much, much faster. And then they kind of hang out in the colony. And once they get old enough, because bees are, believe it or not, they're a lot more like people than, you know, you kind of think about. They kind of, when they're young, they don't really want to go out and do stuff. They haven't really learned how to fly yet. They kind of take it easy. You know, and as they get older, they kind of become more mature and fly more and are more confident. Yeah. But when they're, when they get to a certain point in their, their age or they're comfortable, they'll go out to an area that's called a drone congregation zone. And they'll make this big ball of bees that looks really similar to a swarm, um, but it's nothing but boys. And they all hang out on that branch or whatever it is. And the queens somehow also naturally know where these places are. And when they go flying by, that whole ball of boy bees will all take off and take after. And it kind of looks like a a little comet of bees going across the sky as all the drones are chasing her. And, um, And then, you know, the fastest, strongest drones get to mate. And the ones that aren't the fastest and strongest have to that they uh, have better luck next time. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know what? It's crazy how, how much people don't know about bees, you know, and there's so many different facts. And um, did you have to learn all this? Like, is this like an entire like bachelor's degree of like bee science, basically? Well, you know, with, with any trade, you can learn a lifetime amount in anything. You know, mm-hmm. no matter how trivial it seems like on, on the base level, as once you really get into it and take it seriously, there's so much to learn. Yeah. But on the basic level from like beekeeping, you know, when I'm training new people, we break it down as simply as we can. And it's just learning when they're hungry and learning when they need space and learning when they're sick. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you know, you can learn as much or as little as you want to, as long as you kind of have those basic principles down. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's, it's tough because you can go into it with a really elementary level of knowledge and experience and do just fine. Mm -hmm. And you can also go in with an incredible amount of knowledge and experience and then open up the beehive and have no idea what is going on. Oh, I heard you say sick bee. So when you said sick bee, can can you make them not sick anymore? I'm like, what is a sick bee? Yeah, so bees have a lot of parasites and pathogens. Uh, they're they're really really vulnerable to a lot of stuff. So the main things we'll come across will be like varroa mite in modern day, um, which is a mite that would be like if you had a tick on you the size of a football, basically. Oh. Um, they also get mites that are called tracheal mites, which again is another mite that lives in their in their throat, their trachea. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also have things like foul brood, which is just a really, really just toxic disease. It's really, really contagious. Um, and so there's all kinds of stuff like that. And mm-hmm. when you open up a beehive, if, if you're new, you'd have to kind of really look and really, uh, so they'll scramble around a lot more instead of the mild kind of mm, sound you normally get when you open up the hive. Mm-hmm. They'll usually be a, almost, I mean, when I open it, it sounds like panic because the hive is just going, and it's, it's just, it sounds stressful. Okay. Um, and so you can kind of figure out just by opening it up and listening to them and paying attention to them if they're having something going on. Yeah. And then we do medicate them if they're sick. And I honestly medicate them um, at least two times a year, regardless if I see anything, because I need to make sure that those, you know, 
those levels of parasites and pathogens never get very high. Yeah. So um, there's countless ways to treat your bees. From uh, some people will put in just like a vapor in there that takes care of everything. Yeah. But the most common way to treat your bees will be to take a piece of cardboard coated with, unfortunately, miticides or insecticides, mm-hmm. which is not ideal. But as a beekeeper, the entire goal is, I mean, whenever you're working with your bees, you're you're never, you're always hurting them in some capacity, right? You're always going to squish one at least when you're going through it. Yeah. So the goal is always to help your bees more than, Hurt. you know, more than the consequence of, you know, leaving them alone. Yeah. So well, a lot of these things are kind of necessary evils, but we do put a lot of these kind of treatments in the colonies to keep these parasites and pathogens and things under control so that they don't have... Um, really bad viruses effect. that keep yeah. them from developing or keep their wings from growing and, and stuff like that. It's yeah. just horrible to see. All right, let's talk about some things that I've heard. I've heard that some bees actually know your face. What do you think about that? I don't think it's true. You know, um, you have thousands and thousands of bees in there and they live such a short time. And for the most part, if you open up a beehive, you're going to check on them every two weeks. And the bees really only are they're, they're in their adult form because they're, they're like butterflies. They start as eggs and they turn into a larva and they pupate and they come out as an adult. Mm-hmm. And they're really only in the adult form for about six weeks. And of those six weeks, they can really only fly around for, you know, three or four of them. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't think it's likely. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but um, I'm a skeptic. Okay. The other thing is smell and color. Now, I am a redhead. <laughs> <laughs> and I have uh, I have a dark red hair um, color, and for some reason I find that bees always are attracted to me whenever I'm outside. Right. Uh, is that is that a real thing? Color and smell? That is very very real. So when it comes to smell, um, one of my favorite examples that I have is there is lemongrass oil, and lemongrass oil smells really really similar to the queen's come here pheromone so if you have lemongrass oil and you put that into like something you want to attract bees into like a bee box or um i mean my my favorite example of this i had a customer that called us panicking because there was thousands and thousands of bees that she swore were trying to break into her house and they go yeah no problem (laughs) so we show up there and she opens up the door and i mean you could just smell the lemongrass oil and it looks like every bee for a two mile radius was trying to get into her house and she goes i just don't know what's going on and we look and she had um she had just moved in and so she had like six incense um little machines with lemongrass oil just churning out that smell and it drew tons and tons of bees over so um smell absolutely does it and color absolutely attracts them because they're looking for flowers so If they see something that looks like a flower and smells like a flower, they're going to check it out and see if there's any nectar there. So um, even when we did research, we would take little cups and we would put out different color cups with um, some sugar water on it and see what cups would attract bees the most. Mm -hmm. Um, Turns out bright yellow was kind of our our big hit, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a bright reddish color definitely works too. Yeah. Yeah, I I heard that they they really like blue and they also like cluster plants because obviously they're trying to pollinate, right? Um, so I heard they so like lavender and rosemary is what I heard. They do love it. Um, 
that that's getting kind of into a complex subject there, though, because um, an entire branch of just ecology and studying nature would be pollination ecology, which is just the relationship between flowers and pollinators. Mm. And to kind of give the, the short version is that um, way, way back when, when Darwin was doing all the stuff that he was doing, um, one of his big hypotheses for evolution was that every flower has one pollinator that is attracted to that plant. So by looking at just the structure of the flower, whether it's open or whether you have to crawl to it, whether it's something you need a long tongue, you could tell which, uh, which flower went to which kind of creature, even if you didn't know what the creature was. Or mm. vice versa, you could find a moth or find a bird or you know, like a hummingbird or a bee yeah. and identify what kind of flower they would be attracted to. Um, since then, we've kind of learned that some things like honeybees are generalists, but they... So they'll go to anything, but certain creatures are going to be way better at pollinating certain flowers than others. So honeybees are one of the just pinnacle generalist pollinators, which is why we love them so much, and they can pollinate almost anything. But if you take blueberries, for example, a bumblebee um, is some ridiculous amount, like 20 times more successful at pollinating blueberry flowers than honeybees. So you have to have comical numbers of uh, honeybees to pollinate blueberries compared to just a few bumblebees. So honeybees will go to anything that they can because they're like us, right? They want the easiest meal they can get to, but Mm -hmm. they're definitely way better with certain flowers than others. They do get preferences. And even more than that, uh, honeybees to me are are kind of like children. They they do have thought processes going on. So um, when a honeybee goes out and finds a flower, if they like it and it doesn't, you know, stop blooming, that honeybee will just about do anything in its power you go back to that same plot of flowers for its entire life because it knows where it is and it likes it. Right. And one of my favorite things is it's called Honeybee Democracy. It's actually a book that's really, really fun. Mm-hmm. But when they go out and find something, they'll come back and they'll tell other bees about it by grabbing them and shaking them. And oh. it's really funny because they're supposed to shake them and then do a little pattern to call the bee dance, the waggle dance, to show the other bees where they're supposed to go. But if it's a brand new young bee and it's their first time going to those flowers, it takes them about three times of grabbing other bees and shaking them before they actually remember to give directions. Wow. That is crazy. So I'm sure being the beekeeper that you are, you've seen the uh, the Disney movie, um, the bee Disney movie, right? I hate it. <laughs> I think you I hate it. <laughs> what What do you hate the most about it? I'm I'm just going to be honest. I've never even gotten through. I'm not sure if I've gotten through the first 10 minutes of it because <laughs> bees are just so interesting, you know, yeah. and there's so much to them and almost nothing in at least the first 10 minutes I've seen is accurate. You know, <sighs> the main character is a guy, for example. And yeah. first of all, you know, it shows them sharpening their stingers. The main character is a guy bee. Makes no sense. Make the main character a girl, right? right. And then he goes home to his parents and again, there's one queen. There's no king right and everyone's siblings so why do we have to throw these extra things in there that make no sense when bees in and of themselves this podcast kind of proof is so interesting that we could actually use accurate stuff and make a good story i love that you just said that because that is very true if you're gonna make a movie contact a a bee expert and go based on that you know i i'm really glad that you said that i like that a lot yeah i mean this 
this job, I mean, if, if you heard some of the things that we do at this job, you know, um, there, there is no excuse for a boring story involving people. You know, there, <laughs> yeah. there's no, there's no need to even make stuff up even a lot of the time because there, there are stories. Speaking of stories, Brian. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one and then I'm going to tell you my B story. Okay. Mm-hmm. What is your most terrifying B story? I mean, that depends. Do you want to talk about most terrifying thing involving bees or most terrifying thing involving the business? Yours, your your memory of the most, if you had to pick something that was the most terrifying for you in your memory, in your past. So this is strictly personal. What is your most terrifying bee story? So the most terrifying thing about bees a lot of the time isn't really the bees. It's what you have to do for the bees. So when you're a beekeeper and you're moving bees, you have to move them at night because during the daytime they're active and they're flying. And if you were to move their hive during the day, you would lose all the field force that's all out flying. Okay. So when you're working them, you have to take care of them during the day. And then nighttime, you throw them all in trucks and you move them all over, sometimes all over the country, right? Sometimes even out of the country if they let us. There's some weird stuff like that. Okay. But so, you know, you, you get all your stuff ready. And the, the thing with bees at night is they're cold. And within the colony, all of the jobs are based on age. So a brand new baby bee will take care of babies, maybe move some honey around within the colony. Um, and as they get older, they start building wax and doing that kind of stuff. Then they become guard bees. And at the very end of their life, they're out foraging. Mm-hmm. So when you mess with the bees during the day, all the old guard bees are out foraging. When you work with them at night, all of the guard bees are there and all of those foragers are there, which okay. all used to be guard bees and are all happy to sing you if they have to protect their home. Mm-hmm. So you have way more aggressive bees. And so we were just wrapping up our our season um, up north and bringing all the bees from basically all over, but mostly from Idaho into uh, California on the blueberries. And you're dealing with relatively old trucks. And whenever you're going to move all these beehives, they're coming on semis of, you know, 408 beehives per semi. You just have all of these bees that are in the dark and they're cold. And so they jump out of the box and they jump on you. And now they're cold. So like during the day, they're flying around you in like a cloud. So now they're on you and they're cold. They want to get warm. So they'll crawl on you and look for anywhere they can find warmth, which is almost always any hole you have in your entire suit. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, but that's just, again, that's just a normal evening of moving bees where you have to you know in the middle of the night middle of farms covered in bees that are cold and crawling on you and want to get warm and summer nights and summer not which are all their own nightmares but um you know that the scariest things i've had is you know just in general the equipment because you're working with stuff that may or may not work and if something does not work you can't call a mechanic you know there's no such thing as a guy that'll come by and help you out while you're covered in bees in the middle of the night yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one night, one of the, the single scariest thing that ever happened to me was I was moving bees on a farm um, from one end to the other, which was a big farm. But we don't normally tie stuff down if it's relatively level and you're going from one end of the farm to the other 100 yards kind of thing. The bees will bounce around a little bit, but they'll be okay for that little ride. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're unloading these semis of bees and putting something like 120 hives in the back of the truck. And I go up on this hill. And when I pulled the emergency brake to park, um, the truck started rolling backwards. <gasps> and then the truck turned off. 
<gasps> and so I had 128 beehives in the back of this large truck and a forklift on the back of that. And now I'm rolling backwards um, towards a bunch of blueberries. So it was a it was a six shift truck, like most big old trucks are. And so when I pushed the six shift down, that took me out of gear. So now I'm rolling backwards in neutral and frantically trying to turn the truck on. It just wouldn't. So I made an executive decision and I turned the steering wheel as hard as I could, which made the trailer go off in a different direction than where the back of the truck is going, no. which jackknifes the whole thing to stop it. Yeah. Um, because like fun fact, if you kill a tree on an orchard, you owe the farmer for the lifetime oh. value of that plant, right? No. It's like once I ripped out a lemon tree and I owed the farmer 500 bucks. Oh my gosh. So, you know, rolling 20 miles an hour towards blueberry bushes was going to be a problem. So jackknife the whole load, um, the forklift flipped over, all the bees in the back fell off. You know, we had to go through at night now and try to put all these boxes back together, all the frames, all the bees spilled everywhere. And as you're grabbing all of these frames of bees that are open and exposed and they're all crawling up your arm, oh, yeah, they're cool. um, that was that was one of the longest nights I've ever had. Oh my gosh. Wow. What a debacle. Wow. Well, my story isn't going to be anything compared to that. <laughs> but I didn't think it would be. I just wanted to get. I just wanted to get that story out of you. My bee story. I was little, and apparently there was a beehive that was um, in a um, a car that was broken down, and um, I have an older brother, and he was in the in the passenger seat, and I was pretending to drive as young kids do, you know, and. Um, and he was like, okay, my turn to drive. So I got out of the car and walked around the, the front of the hood area and uh, to get into the passenger side. And, and when I got directly in front of the car, he honked the horn, you know, a very loud. <laughs> and apparently all of the bees that had made a beehive in the engine of this broken down car uh, oh, no. came out and thought I was the bad guy. And I felt like I was on one of those shows where... They put stuff all over you. I don't know if this is even true. We haven't. I haven't even asked you this yet, but where all the bees are dripping off of you, right? Yeah. So, and then I'm screaming and yelling as this as a young kid, and I have all these bees attacking me, and they're all over me. And uh, here comes Mama Bear, my Mama Bear, <laughs> out of the house with a broom. So not only am I getting stung, but my mom comes out and starts whapping me with a broom. And so now, uh -huh. now I'm getting beaten and stung at the same time. And that's my, that's my horrific bee story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, people do wacky stuff when they, when they have bees going yeah. on. I, I mean, one of, one of my favorite things that people do, yeah. um, that I've, it, it's a complete nightmare mm -hmm. is they like, is they think that if they use gasoline, it'll make bees go away. <gasps> what do you mean? Well, if it's in a tree, sometimes they'll take gasoline, just pour it in the tree because they think the smell will make the bees go away. Um, I've had people take cardboard and soak it in gasoline and pack it in their attic. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, another fun story was I got to a house and I got up on the roof and I went, smells like gasoline. Well, that's kind of weird. And I stuck my smoker in the hole where the bees were at. And when I puffed the smoker, the roof just about exploded. <gasps> and the fire department came out. And um, they're going, what did you do? What was in your smoker? And I was like, it had 
pine needles. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. You know, and the owner there fessed up that he tried to get rid of the bees before I got there by packing as much cardboard with uh, gasoline on it as he could. Oh. And I basically blew his roof off. Um, oh my gosh. So, you know, but we, we come across things, get to the customer's house, the customer's all swollen to try to do it themselves. I mean, that, that stuff just all the time, all the time. Wow. Oh my goodness. Oh man. What a good, what, uh, you know what? There are so many, you know, just God bless you for doing that. You know, I know a lot of, <laughs> I know a lot of people just, they want the environment to be good and they're, they want to save the bees and save the trees. And, uh, you're really out there doing it every day. And, um, and there's a lot more to it than people think. There is. And from, from my end, the probably one of the most frustrating things in the world mm -hmm. is that everyone wants to save the bees mm -hmm. as long as it's somewhere else, you know, mm -hmm. um, or everyone loves bees as long as there's someone else or somewhere else. Yeah. Because, you know, when we're trying to find places to keep bees, even on farms, um, we get kicked off of probably 50% of our locations that we get within oh. the first year. Just because someone walked, I mean, when, I'm not even joking. This one time we had someone open up a lid to our beehive and take out a frame of honey and he got stung and then sued the farmer. Or we had another time someone was riding their horse through the farm and um and the horse got stung which then kicked the lady off who then tried to sue the farmer wow. so you know bees are everyone loves them but as a beekeeper on our end like our our mission is to just not be seen because if people see us they're going to be upset about it and to be honest like i love the little bees <laughs> like i was telling you with my little orange tree outside to be honest when i first called you i was worried about the the rate of the dead bees on the ground versus the ones that were pollinating so mm -hmm. yeah it's tough because you know out here um california i've, I've been in kind of a, a battle with the ag department for the last several years which is the whole thing yeah but um you know out here we have this bug called the asian citrus psyllid which is spreading this disease called the huang lung bing disease and mm -hmm. what it does is if it spreads that disease to a citrus plant, which is, you know, all the oranges, lemons, limes, everything like that. Mm -hmm. um, the fruit will never ripen on the tree. It'll, it'll stay green. Wow. And it's highly contagious. So then if another psyllid sucks the, the juices out of that plant and then hops to another tree, it will spread the disease again. So for the last about 10 years, give or take, um, there's been a really, really aggressive spray regimen on citrus. And now we have new bugs on avocados and all kinds of other stuff that's local. So, you know, when you when you see dead bees like that, it is really, really tough to know if it's just the natural order of things or if someone nearby is trying to get rid of some bug and, you know, the, the bees are kind of a <laughs> innocent victim of, of the pest control going on. Are those pesticides that kill ants bee-friendly? So, um... A little bit of extra background on me is I'm actually, I, I used to be licensed for pest control in California. I let the license expire because I got into beekeeping instead. But mm -hmm. um, I've worked for probably about a half dozen different pest control companies in California, um, Idaho, and Washington. Okay. So those chemicals, if you were to take out some of the stuff from any, almost any chemical on the pest guy's truck, right? And if you were to spray a beehive with that, mm -hmm. it would die. So the stuff, um, the stuff is very toxic to bees. Mm. But 
most of those chemicals, when you're having someone spray the house, they're spraying the concrete and like the foundation of the home. Right. So realistically, the odds of that, of a, of a bee being really interested in the corner foundation of your home is mm-hmm. really minimal. You know, okay. so I think the impact of keeping your home pest free um, in terms of bees, almost no impact whatsoever there. Now, okay. when you're spraying, you know, your, your plants where the bees are getting food from, a totally different discussion. Like I think the biggest culprit, um, one of the biggest problems is just in modern day what we call systemic pesticides, mm-hmm. which are pesticides that are either genetically put into the plant or are sprayed on the plant and taken up throughout the whole plant. Okay. Um, so then when the bees are coming out and they're getting pollen or getting nectar from the plant and this insecticide runs through the entire plant, mm. um, it might not kill the bees, but they do bring it back home and share it with their babies. And they have found relationships between that kind of exposure and either decreased lifespan or more confusion in the honeybees. I don't even fully know how to say it properly, but I know it's an anti-cancer uh, or a cancer-fighting something or other, uh, propolis or something? So it's propolis. Propolis, okay. So, yeah, so bees are actually really, really efficient with plants. And they'll they'll take just about any part of the plant, even there's even leaf cutter bees, different species. They'll even take the leaves off of plants and use them for their nest. Yeah. But uh, when the bees are going out to flowers, they're mostly looking for the pollen and the nectar. The pollen they keep and give to their babies as just protein, and the nectar is just going to be turned into honey. But the other thing they'll go for is kind of like the rhizinous, um, like tree sap and that kind of stuff. Mm. And th- those products they turn into the propolis. Okay. So with bees, virtually everything in the hive um, has just spectacular properties. And that's not just as a, a beekeeper saying it. It's like actually research done on it, right? Not trying yeah. to like yeah. sell stuff. Yeah. But I mean, like honey, for example, um, antimicrobial, antibiotic um, has great uh, ability to help you out with your allergies. It has just a tremendous amount of vitamins and minerals. Uh, bee stings, for example. Um, the venom, actually, like you were saying, the venom in bee stings will kill cancer cells. And they're trying to figure out how to use uh, bee stings and the active ingredient that kills cancer cells in cancer treatment. Wow. Um, same thing with arthritis. Bee stings will also help with uh, with arthritis. Oh, it my works goodness. almost as well as, um, what's it called? The corazone shot has almost yeah. the same quality. But propolis within the hive, because that was your question, mm-hmm. is... Um, basically what the bees use sterilized stuff so if you imagine a tree hollow you really don't want like moldy stuff or like i mean god forbid something were to die inside of that hole right i mean they really don't want rotting stuff inside their hive they're extraordinarily clean and they also don't really like having extra moisture getting it they really want things to be as you know dry and sterilized as possible so propolis is what they use to fill in little cracks within the colony or if something really gross dies in the hive will actually cover it in propolis like again kind of gross but once I had a, a snake actually die in one of my boxes and the bees completely propolize it because they're trying to sterilize it oh my gosh um, so the propolis is you know you eat a little bit of it and there's not a tremendous amount of research on the benefits of propolis mm-hmm. um, for people but it does have antibiotic, antimicrobial, again, extra um, vitamins and minerals and their qualities um, and is really, really good for you for a ton of different reasons. I feel like maybe people don't know a lot about that unless unless maybe you have cancer, but maybe maybe it could be like a pre-cancer fighting thing. I don't know. 
you know, there, there's a lot of, um, a lot of ideas and research about it, but, um, the, the toughest thing is there's not a lot of funding in it. So mm. that's, that's always been kind of one of my dreams was to have some much better research working on, on actually figuring out a lot of these things. Because, I mean, if yeah. you're a big drug company, you're not going to make a lot of money by figuring out that these things fix all the problems and all you have to do is catch a beat. I mean, the, just from the very surface level introductory research that we've done, virtually everything involving bees is just so good for people. Yeah. And one of the biggest jokes among even the beekeeping community is that, you know, there's really no such thing as a beekeeper that dies young. And there's really not many, if any, beekeepers that come down with arthritis or have uh, health issues like that. You know, wow. um, beekeepers in general are one of the oldest living um, professions, partially because they don't start until they're 50. But <laughs> you know, the average beekeeper is very old. But, um, but also because they seem to be very healthy until very late in life. You sell this on your website, don't you, Brian? We do have some. Yeah, it's, it's something that we don't get a lot of demand for. So, mm-hmm. um, But we do have some available pretty much all year round. What form does it come in and who buys this from you? Um, mostly, so historically, when you're looking at like health food stores and things like that, they sell basically the propolis just ground up into like a fine powder. They put them in capsules um, and just take them like a pill. Um, we usually just sell the raw propolis as it is. If someone wants to put it in a capsule, they're, they're completely welcome to. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the way that we, we get it is it's like I was saying before, the bees want to fill in gaps in, in their colony. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we put this lid on the beehive that's just not smooth <laughs> and it yeah. bothers them so much that they cover it in propolis because they want to have it smoothed out. Oh, and wow. so you end up with this big sheet of it that you I mean, if you're doing it the right way, you put it in a freezer. You don't have to, but you can. And then once it's frozen, you take that sheet out. And when you bend it, it all comes off um, in these big, beautiful, you know, almost like chip type type pieces. Wow. You can then grind up. I really want to do a Nick Talk video. Like, <laughs> I want to come and watch, like, all the bee things that you're talking about right now. Where are bees, like the honeybees, where are they most um, frequently located? They just like to be in cavities, and they like to be away from people. Because, um, like I said, the more people notice them, the more they mess with them. Okay. So, out here across Southern California, we have in the neighborhood of four to five hives per square mile. Um, they're absolutely everywhere in the tree hollows and in the walls and, you know, stuff like that. We, yeah. Like I said, the baby Buddhas, um, people put wine barrels out, they get them in those. They love owl boxes. So, um, they're just all around, and... Um, I don't know. They're they're tough to see, but once you find one, mm-hmm. you start seeing them everywhere. So, like for me, I walk outside and I see bees covering my orange uh, tree. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that there's a hive nearby? Within two miles, um, they'll fly up to two miles. So, you know, I I had this one customer that got a they got a swarm in their in their tree, like mm-hmm. just about three or four times a year, um, every year. Okay. And she had no idea why. Couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And after like two or three years, we actually went. We got a call from the person who was next door, and the next door neighbor had a bunch of bees in their deck. You know, so um, a lot of the times they're closer than you think, but they're also really, really hard to find because they really do want to remain as hidden as they can. 
Why is it better for people to have bee removal than spray them? Well, bees are a really important resource. Um, like we covered before, bees are dying just in mass, and having bee rescue is first and foremost, you know, saving little lives. Um, they are bugs, but they're still lives and wonderful little creatures. Mm-hmm. But um, past that, if they're rescued, they can be used for crop pollination and honey production and um, keeping you know everything in our local nature um healthy and producing and and going on yeah and on top of everything else usually we're cheaper than pest control so on top of everything else you get to save money you know oh so you're yeah you're saving money and you're helping you know the environment and i think that's i think that's great i love that you do that um right i wanted to ask you about um um allergies so when people are allergic to bees uh do you know if it's a certain, like, do you know anything about allergies and bees? All kinds of things. Okay. So, you know, the, depends on which way we're approaching it, mm-hmm. but the general idea for bees is that they want to sting you as a deterrent to make you go away. Mm-hmm. They don't want to, you know, kill you or anything. Like bees, or not bees, boss venom is designed to paralyze and eat something, right? Because they're predators. Yeah. But for bees, it's, an entirely deterrent-based system where they want it to hurt. They want you to be itchy and miserable so that you learn to never mess with them again. Yeah. So basically everyone will have some degree of a, an allergic reaction to honeybees. So you'll mm-hmm. get itchy, you'll get swollen. That's totally normal. The point where it's not normal is where your throat starts swelling and you can't breathe. Uh. So specifically, Specifically with bees, I mean, even the first couple of times I went out, even to this day, I think sometimes, if I get stung on the ankle, sometimes my foot will just swell up for like three days and it's just obnoxious, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, um, but again, that's totally normal. Now, when you're talking about allergies regarding uh, like nature and eating honey, um, bee allergies and nature allergies are kind of the same thing. It's your body having a reaction to something. So it's exposed to something and your body essentially gets dramatic. Mm-hmm. and um, overreacts to what's going on. And the only way to really combat that, at least that I know of, and I'm sure there's doctors out there that know more about it than I do, but on the beekeeper basic simple level, um, the more you're exposed to something, the less your body is going to freak out about it because it's a normal exposure to whatever's mm-hmm. showing up. So like for beekeepers, if you get stung the first time, you're probably not going to have a reaction almost at all. The second time you get stung, you're going to have a really bad reaction because your body was exposed to it the first time and now goes, I know what that is, get it. And um, that's pretty miserable. And then as you get stung regularly after that, the reaction is less and less and less dramatic until, you know, there's virtually no reaction. Humans have had such a just romantic relationship with bees since the beginning of time. You know, we're, yeah. we're in just intrinsically entwined with them, whether it was the Vikings putting beehives in the front of their boats um, for meat and for combat, you know, to settlers going across the country with beehives on their wagons, you know, um, we've, we've been attached to bees since the very beginning and they have a tremendous amount to teach us about ourselves. Everyone carried beehives with them because it was a source of wax, which you could use for candles and for wood proofing. And I mean, now they use it in cosmetics. So mm-hmm. it's, it's like edible, waterproof, um, super healthy to have on your skin for most people. Some people are allergic, you know, but as long as you're not allergic, you know, it's right. fantastic for your skin. Yeah. Um, 
That's and what it was. It, treating wood, Brian. Treating wood. Yeah, treating wood. So uh, it, you can use it to waterproof. So, like, again, ancient settlers oh. would not always do it, but you could use it on the inside of your boat to help waterproof the whole thing. Wow. Okay. So you guys sell this in, like, mass quantities. Yeah? We do, because as we're doing bee removals, you know, we some of the stuff just isn't salvageable. So we're always mm-hmm. taking our wax from our bee removals, and we have that available. Mm-hmm. Um, when we harvest honey, we do have some wax available from that, but mm-hmm. I would say probably 90% of our wax is from our live bee removals. So mostly for non-cosmetic consumption purposes, we do have some available from that. Wow. All right, what is your favorite part of your business? Is it uh, beekeeping? Is it uh, watching people enjoy the honey that you sell? Um, what's your favorite part of your business? I love the actual beekeeping, which is it's kind of funny because that's the part that pays us the least, right? Um, we, we make actually most of our money off of bee removal, and the beekeeping is just kind of like a byproduct at this point. But, you know, being able to have this colony, which is managed by the queen, you know, um, and take care of it over time and watch it grow and watch it go through its life. And you, you see the babies being born and watching the cycles of nature because your, your beehive is just intrinsically tied to the nature around it. Yeah. You can open up the hive and say, oh, wow, they're making a lot of honey. Something must be blooming. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, they're really dry. So there must not be nectar anymore. Um, you, you are just so in touch with your local environment in a way that really very few even other farmers will be um, that I absolutely love that part. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, You know, I, but it just makes me think that you're, you're a family guy, Ryan. I don't know if you have kids, but if you don't, you're going to be a great dad. (laughs) Yeah, I got a son. He's fantastic. Oh, are you going to raise him to uh, come up in the bee industry? I don't know. You know, that's, that's tough because it doesn't, pay that much for Southern California, you know? So it, it really is something that you have to love. Mm-hmm. So if it's something that he really loves and is really interested in, then absolutely. But if he has another passion that actually, you know, pays yeah. the bills a little better, um, <laughs> I wouldn't blame him at all. One last question. How can people get a hold of you um, if they're interested in um, anything? And, and, and what, why would people get a hold of you? Can they buy bees? Can they buy products? We are selling uh, nucleus colonies right now, honeybees. So they're for sale all across Ventura and neighboring counties. Um, if someone wants to come from farther, they'll have to drive. Sorry. <laughs> um, so we do have bees for sale. We usually have honey for sale, but we have so much demand, it sells out really fast. Yeah. So you've got to kind of be on our email list and see um, when it when it's up for sale. We, we get folks that want to make bees just buy it by the bucket. But um, and we also have all of our bee removal. That's that's most of what we do now. It's it's our kind of, I mean, it's it's our love, but also we're we're able to save the bees. You know, so it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of our mission. So that's that's the main thing we like doing. And the easiest way to contact us is our website, which is brianbees.com. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much (laughs) for hanging out with me for so long. I'm taking so much time out of your day. And um, absolutely, anytime. Brian, again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.